Uh, good morning, Meadowbrook. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad all of you are here. We're going to um, be in part two today of a new series of talks that we just began last week around what it means to be church. And uh, that last song was appropriate to lead us into what we're going to be talking about today. In a moment, uh, we'll be doing some reading from the book of Acts, A-C-T-S. It's uh, like the fifth book over in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at chapter 4. So you might want to find that so you can read along in a moment. One of the things that uh, we began talking about last week is what comes to your mind when you think about church? Just what begins to come to your mind? Uh, For some of us, kind of institutionalized things begin to come to mind. And we think about buildings and we think about staff or we think about uh, various offices and officers, a hierarchy, those kinds of things. But uh, it wasn't so much that way in the early days. When the church launched, dare I say, exploded outward, uh, it was all about a movement. And it was a movement that was literally world impacting. And it raises the question, if you're a historian and you're looking at things that happen across history, you have to ask questions. How did that happen? Why did that happen? What was the cause that brought that outcome? And there's not altogether good explanations by historians about why the church was what it was and became what it became. Some of you are familiar with um, a historical figure by the name of Spartacus. How many of you know a little bit about his story? You guys are being really shy. Okay, good, good. Uh, I think there's some kind of cable series about it right now. I've not seen that, but uh, some of you no doubt saw the 1960s epic Spartacus with uh, Kirk Douglas. The short of it is that uh, Spartacus was a slave in the Roman Empire who had been trained as a gladiator. And in those days, um, Rome was so spread out across the known world, much of which was under the Roman Empire, they were constantly fighting wars. And so they constantly had large numbers of their men deployed all over the known world, which meant there weren't sufficient men at home to tend to the farms and tend to the businesses, right? And so slavery became a very big deal in uh, those Roman days. Uh, Some have estimated that there might have been around 6 million population in Italy in that time, and at least 2 million of that were slave men who ran the farms or the, the large plantations and did a lot of the other kinds of work, and some of whom were in the entertainment industry, a la gladiators. Spartacus was one of those who had been trained as a slave to be a gladiator who would show up in the arena and fight, you know, these fights for everyone's entertainment. And the short of that is that he led a number of those uh, slave gladiators to escape. Obviously, they're well trained in fighting. And they were a formidable force to contend with. And slaves began escaping all over the Roman Empire, and like a magnet, they were all drawn to Spartacus and to his movement. And uh, this is about 70 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, It became something of a war. 
and it was not an easily won war. Uh, a couple of different uh, regiments had to be amassed over a period of time before they were finally able to defeat Spartacus and those renegade slaves. Well, um, if you remember the movie, near the end, uh, thousands of Spartacus's men are being crucified along with Spartacus himself. Uh, historians tell us that uh, he probably was not crucified himself. He probably died in battle. No one ever found his body, but that didn't play as well in Hollywood. So um, they had Kirk Douglas uh, among those being crucified. But I say all that to say this. Historically, we know a lot about Spartacus, and we know a lot about what happened at that time, 70 years before Jesus, because it was in Rome's interest for us to know that. See, they literally took 6,000 of those slaves that had risen up in revolt, and they crucified 6,000 men. Can you imagine this? Lining the roads that lead into Rome. 6,000. Cross after cross after cross after cross. Hanging slave after slave after slave after slave. As a deterrent. To anyone ever taking up a sword against Rome again from within, you think that was a significant deterrent? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why all these thousands of years later we know about the story around that crucifixion. And of course we're more familiar with another story about crucifixion and that has to do with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. But when you think about that, how in the world do we know about that? It was in Rome's interest for us to know about the crucifixions around the Spartacus revolt. And so they saw to it that generation after generation heard that story. But Jesus was this obscure prophet in this obscure land that really didn't amount to anything in the Roman Empire. And yet we know more about Jesus' crucifixion. We know more about Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' teachings than we know about all of the Roman emperors combined. We know more about Jesus and the history that has developed around that than we know about all of the Roman history combined. How do you explain that? And from a historical perspective, you can't really accept to give a little nod in the direction of it was a powerful movement that exploded out of the lives of Jesus' followers for who knows what reason. Of course, we believe it was divine reasons that that explosion took place. The church began to go everywhere. Now, we talked about this last week. This thing started with just 120 people who have become followers of Jesus. Today... A third of the world's population claims to follow Jesus. How do you do that? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we're told that at the time of a feast called Pentecost, and this is less than two months after Jesus had resurrected. Okay, this is fresh, right off of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost takes place. The Spirit of God descends upon these 100 or so believers. 
they break out in this miraculous speech, being able to communicate in the language of dozens of people groups that are present for Pentecost, sharing the gospel. And in one day, and in one day, 3,000 come to faith in Christ. Boom. Explosion. Now, where we pick up with that story this week is that this movement was centered on the event of the crucifixion. The teachings of Jesus were very important and became important across uh, the years as people would be trained and, and, and taught in the ways of Jesus. But initially and throughout the movement, it's all been about the resurrection. Because no one has ever died and come back to life. No one has ever died, come back to life, and empowered energized, transformed a following like what has happened with Jesus. So that today a third of the world follows him. And you'll note that in that day and uh, everywhere the movement has continued to be a movement, it has had a strong outward focus. It's not been about the church per se. It's been about everyone that is yet to be part of church and then strange things began to happen through the decades and through the centuries as the church began to be more inwardly focused and institutionalized things began to happen and and some of that's necessary we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks and offices and officers and means of conducting yourself all these things began to happen, which is not evil, which is not bad in and of itself, a lot of it's necessary, but it changed the focus so that the focus began to be more inward, more about us, more about what are our needs, what's God doing for us. As I said last time, there's always been a remnant, though. There's always been some percentage of believers that just would not allow their hearts to be turned inward. So they continue to have that outward focus and God continue to do this moving thing uh, outwardly all across the globe. But for large numbers of us, the focus has turned inward. And when that happens, it begins to be about me and you and anyone else that can begin to figure out how to be one of me or you. I want us to uh, think about that with respect to ourselves. And one of the ways that we get a glimpse is how we pray. What is the primary content of prayers that you pray? Are they outward or are they inward? So do I pray about thank you for this day and thank you for my job and oh God would you do something with my boss? And help me with my marriage. And oh Lord, you know about my challenges with my kid. And it sure would be great if my finances could improve, etc., etc., etc. 
Or are there other outwardly kinds of things that we pray? The content of our praying is a big clue about whether a church has become inward or has stayed outward. What do the majority of your prayers have to do with? Just assess that for a moment. Let me ask it this way. If God answered all your prayers of the last 12 months, if he answered every single prayer you prayed, what would be different in the world? Now, your GPA would probably be better if he answered every prayer you ever prayed, or uh, you would be married, or your marriage would be better, or your kids would be better, or you would have a better job, or you would have a better income, or you would have a better house, or somebody would have gotten better from some sickness. What would be different in the world? Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not criticizing prayers that we pray for ourselves. Jesus invites us to pray prayers for ourselves. My point is that we add to our prayers about ourselves prayers about others. Prayers about what God's up to. Prayers about God-sized activity. God-sized movement. All around us and all across this globe. That's, that's the point. Can we add to prayers about ourselves and prayers about our families and prayers about a few friends? Can we add to that the things that God's about? The things that God wants to do? The things that God purposes in and across this world? When we reflect on the Scriptures... In the explosion of that early church, we find that's exactly what they were doing. They they didn't quit praying about their own lives and their own stuff. But they were praying and participating with God in outward-moving, world-impacting things. So in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Acts, it's a great story. Most of you are somewhat familiar with it. I encourage you to do a fresh reading of it. But uh, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now remember, this is, this is only a couple of months after Jesus' resurrection. All right? So they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And they come upon this guy who's about 40 years old, who's at the gate, lame or crippled, begging. And... As they're, you know, walking by this guy and they hear him begging for alms and no telling how many times they'd seen him there. Uh, This was his position, you know, panhandlers have their place. And this was his place. And it was an obvious place with a lot of traffic where he hoped to be able to get enough in alms or gifts that he'd be able to live. And no telling if John and Peter had walked by him however many times before. But on this occasion, as they walk by him, God stops them and they look at the beggar and the Spirit of God begins to stir inside of Peter and John and they say to the man, look at us. Because he's looking at everybody, right? He's, he's begging. He's trying to see whose eye he can catch, who he might get an offering from. And, and Peter and John say, no, look at us right now. 
And the crippled guy looks up and he connects with Peter and John. And they say, we don't have any money. Here's what we do have. In the name of Jesus, stand and walk. And they hold out a hand and they help the guy who has never stood, who has never walked, to stand and walk. Now, this is a busy place. This is a lot of traffic, a lot of foot traffic. And people all over the place are seeing this. Can you imagine how crazy they're going? These are people that are in and out of the temple all the time. These are people that have passed this guy days, weeks, months, and years. Some of them probably have thrown a coin at him a time or two. And now they see him standing and walking. And they go on into the temple. And people all over the temple yard began to see this guy that they recognize standing and walking. And they are amazed. They are astonished. This, this crowd just gathers around him. Can you imagine the, the kind of buzz that would be going on? How did this happen? What just took place? How does this man stand? And Peter, seeing this crowd assembled, decides this is a good time for a message. And he begins to speak. Just like he had at Pentecost. And he begins to tell them all about Jesus. This one that you turned over to Pilate and to Herod. This one that that Pilate wanted to release to you, but you took a criminal instead. This one that you called for his crucifixion. This one that you put to death. He, He says that over and over again. He is in fact the anointed of God. He has atoned for our sins. He is raised from the dead. And he's preaching the resurrection in the name of Jesus. And this is, this is stunning. This is amazing. So that we're told 5,000 men. They, they, they weren't even counting the women who probably had made similar said 5,000 men come to faith in Christ. Bang. Right there. That had just been a few days earlier. 3,000 had. And so you're talking about in the course of days, probably something around 10% of the current population in Jerusalem coming to faith in Christ. And of course, the authorities are going crazy over this, right? So as... uh, they press their way through the people and they uh, get up to where Peter and John are. They're like, you know, who are you and what are you doing? What are you saying? And they decide this is not good. This is not right. This is not healthy for our uh, community. So they arrest Peter and John, put them in jail. So now they're in jail. What do you do when you're in jail? These authorities huddle up and they begin to talk. You know, how are we going to be able to stop this? How are we going to be able to do anything about this? And they come up with this plan. Uh, This is too popular. This is too much of a movement for us to try to squelch. We can't keep them in prison, so we're going to let them go. But we're going to do so in a certain kind of way. So let's pick up the story in chapter 4 and see what happens. And we'll start reading in verse 12. So this is what... Peter and John had been proclaiming as they're proclaiming about Jesus and that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they come up on these guys. They recognize that they are uneducated, that they are unlearned, but there's something extraordinary about them. They have been with Jesus. And the fact that Peter and John are proclaiming that the day of salvation that everyone's been waiting forever to arrive is here, but it's exclusively found in Jesus, is driving them nuts. Funny how that message continues to drive people nuts. The exclusivity of Jesus. And in addition to that, because they see the man standing, they're witnesses to this miracle as well. These authorities have no word of opposition to say. They can't do anything about it. And so they arrest Peter and John, but they come up with this idea. We can't keep them. Let's let them go, but let's let them go with a command. You can't talk about Jesus, and you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John said, you know what? You have to do what you have to do. But we have to do what we have to do. And we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Let's look at verse 20. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. What do they see? What do they hear? They saw a crucifixion. They saw a resurrection. They saw a living Christ who had come up from the grave. They had multiple conversations with him. They sat down and had a fish-grilled breakfast with him. They had a commission from him. They could not help but speak what they had seen and heard. Pick it up in verse 24. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Now, what's going on? They're beginning to pray. Notice what they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And here they began to quote an Old Testament passage found in Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, let's pause there. We cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Okay, okay, okay. Well, we're still going to let you go. But we wish you'd tone it down. 
Well, of course, they don't. They go back to where some of their brothers and sisters in the faith are gathered and praying. They announce that they've been released. What the authorities said to them about they want us to shut up. They want us to be quiet. No longer talk about the the resurrection of our Lord. And so they all began to pray. Now notice their prayer. When they began to pray, they began to pray about the sovereignty of God. Now, how would you pray? How would I pray? I suspect if I'd just gotten out of jail, or if one of my good friends, Peter and John, had just gotten out of jail, I'd be praying, oh Lord, would you protect them? Oh Lord, would you just put a a hedge around them so that uh, they would be safe in the the power of your hand, you know, etc.? Uh, God, God, would you guide us all about how we're to handle this controversy? Uh, Would you speak into our lives? Would you do this for us? Would you do that for us? I imagine that's a lot of how my praying would have gone. But their prayers. and, And remember, Peter and John are like the top guys. These people had just seen what happened to Jesus. Jesus had just been captured, beaten, crucified. What are they going to do with Peter and John if Peter and John don't shut up? These are the top guys in the church. But instead of praying any of that kind of stuff, they pray, oh, Lord, you're sovereign. We're reminded about how powerful you are. How you had always planned for this to take place. Yes, Pilate, Herod, uh, other religious leaders made decisions, but this was still your plan. You had your hand all over this from the beginning of time. And we're confident that you're sovereign right now in this moment. We're confident that you have everything in control right now. Now, There's one way to begin praying. Let's uh, continue to see what they pray. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Now this prayer just knocks me over. They prayed, God, would you make us bold? We know you're sovereign. We know everything that's taking place right now is according to your plan. There's nothing that's happening that's outside of your plan. We want to be a part of your plan. Would you give us the boldness? To thoroughly be a part of your plan. Now, from my 21st century perspective, I thought they were pretty bold. I thought they were the definition, the embodiment of boldness. They were looking pretty bold to me. But no, they're sitting there saying, Lord, we just need your boldness. Would you make us bold? And oh yeah, would you 
stretch out your hand and heal and do mighty acts and wonders, would you do the miraculous? Now, you have to get the context on this. Uh, From where I come from, and I know some of you come from a similar place, when you start talking about the miraculous, I get a little nervous. Because I have seen, you have seen, a lot of abuses of that, right? All you have to do is a little channel surfing late at night when you should be going to bed. And you see this weird guy come up on TV. And he is, you know, this kind of like weird character or caricature uh, of who knows what. And he's uh, speaking, you know, theoretically, boldly. And he's laying his hand on people and they're falling on the ground and everybody's hooting and hollering. And there's just strange, weird stuff going on. Now, I I feel confident that there is some of that somewhere that's probably legitimate. I think a whole lot of that in a whole lot of places is fabricated emotionalism, manipulations, and something other than what God's up to. Personal opinion. And, and that stuff just strikes me as weird. It strikes me as peculiar and strange, sometimes kind of goofy. And really, I don't want to be associated with it. I don't want to be too close to it. So when we start coming to a passage like this, I can get a little bit nervous. I don't know if you can. But you have to remember the context. These were prayers. They were praying for people outside of the church. Not inside. These weren't like gatherings of insiders where weird stuff was going on and kind of like showtime was happening. This was stuff outside the church. This was stuff like in the marketplace, stuff in their business place, stuff in their community that they were praying boldly, God, would you stretch out your hand and and do something miraculous? Because when that would happen with non-believers, they would perk up and be struck with a sense of awe about God and their hearts would be sensitized and they would be drawn to Jesus. That was the whole point of it. The point wasn't, wasn't about talking healed, me getting healed, uh, our family member or favorite friend getting healed. And there's nothing wrong with praying for that. We want to continue to pray for one another in those kinds of ways. But the point was to do that outwardly so that when I find out that my office mate has this scenario going on in his or her life, that I would boldly pray for God to do a miracle in that circumstance as a means to reach to that person. Or I would pray that in my community. Or I would pray that across my city. And of course, the bold part is that you don't do that secretly. The bold part is that you're up front and you're out. You know, you're outed about that. I'm a believer in Jesus and I'm going to pray for healing for your child. Or I'm going to pray for you to be able to get that job. Or I'm going to pray for God to give you favor with this person that's oppressing you. Or I'm going to pray that justice shows up in this circumstance or in this situation. That's the stuff that's going on outside of us, that we would have the boldness to be God's agent in those scenarios. And then when God would show up, that hearts would be awed and drawn to Him. That was the difference. And God answered 
that prayer and they were bold and miracles did happen outside of the church. And thousands and thousands and thousands continued to come to faith in Christ. And this thing explodes and goes global. So that it is what it is today. Friends, you and I are here today because our first century forefathers were bold. If they weren't bold, we wouldn't be here today. Now, notice what happened. Prayers were answered. It was as if the world was being shaken. Hearts were being drawn to Christ. And pick it up with me in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. As all that outward activity, activity of God, is taking place inwardly within the community of believers, they are becoming extraordinarily unified, extraordinarily generous. Friends, the quickest way for a church to get sick is to be inwardly focused. How are we going to be more unified? How are we going to get more generous? How are we going to be able to do this? How are we going to be able to... According to this pattern, when the church is primarily concerning herself with what's going on outside of her walls, the byproduct of that is extraordinary unity, extraordinary generosity within the fellowship. Now, I I know almost everybody in the room, and I know most of you very well. And I think I know the heart of most of you. And I think your heart is that you want to be the church that we're reading about here in these opening chapters of Acts. That's what I want to be. I believe most of you want to be that. And so the question before us today is... Will we? Will we be that? Will you build your life on Jesus? Not Jesus plus your career, Jesus plus this relationship, Jesus plus your finances, Jesus plus whatever. But you'll just, you'll just build it on Him. Will you add to the, all the prayers that you already pray? Prayers that God would make you bold. Would you dare pray that? Would you dare pray, God, would you stretch out your hand? Would you heal? Would you do miraculous things to your glory and to the drawing of lives to yourself? That's not a rhetorical question. So I'm going to ask you if you'll pray with me right now. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? 
just a moment. Are you building your life on Jesus? That's the first and foremost. And if you are, hold on just a minute. But if you're not, is there some reason you would not build your life on Jesus right now? Is that reason sufficient to keep you from Jesus right now? Would you say, yes, I will give my heart and life to Jesus right now and forever? And if that's where you are right now, you're ready to make that decision. Every head bow, every eye closed. Will you just shoot your hand up real quick and down so I can see because I'm going to pray for you. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. I can see that. All right. I'm settling it right now. Jesus is my Lord. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to build my life on him. Anybody else? All right. Thank you. Now, for the rest of us, for all of us. Will you pray right now, right where you are, silently? God, would you make me bold? Just pray it. And as God is stirring boldness in you, What's he want to do outside of you, outside of this room? Is there somebody in your office? Is there somebody in your neighborhood? Is there somebody in your social circle that God wants to do something in their life and he's inviting you to pray? God, do this in his life. Do this in her life. Right now, would you pray? For God to do miraculous things in whoever's life, in whatever circumstance. Pray that right now. If you look here, some of those prayers that you have just prayed, we're believing God's going to move. God's going to do something. We're going to see something of his activity take place over these next few days or weeks. And the the word to us is to keep on praying. This isn't a once and for all. Oh, I, I prayed that Sunday morning. Keep on praying and keep on praying until the miracle comes. And some of that's very private. Uh, It's between you and some individuals that you're praying for. But some of that needs to be known because it would edify the body. It would encourage the rest of us to see and to hear how God moved you to pray boldly. And we're going to pray with you that God do what you're asking God to do. All right? So we're going to take just a couple of minutes. And I want to see if there's one or two of you 
that would stand and say, okay, here's how I was praying. I need everybody in the house praying with me for the same thing. Is there one or two of you that would... Anybody over here right now? You felt impressed to pray. You want us to pray with you. Anybody over in this section? Okay. What was on your heart? Well, a lot of you know um, my friend Brian, and I've been praying for many, many years. And I just really felt um, just called to God calling me to just pray miraculous things in his life. And I'm just praying that you will pray with me. Thanks. All right. Thank you. back here. One more. Okay. Uh, my friend Linda, um, I want uh, prayers for a miracle in her life, uh, particularly around her children, that she'll see God moving in a way that love and all those things will return. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm confident and I'm trusting that several of you have things that God just stirred you about. Let's pray one more time. So, Father, you see the heart. You've heard the cries. We do pray that we would be a bold people in the name of Jesus. Not weird and crazy and obnoxious, but a godly boldness. We pray for these requests that were just made out loud. The Lord, you would move, stretch out your hand and move and act and work in ways that these friends can see and sense you and be drawn to you. And we pray that for all the silent requests that were just uh, lifted up to you, God. Show yourself. Bring great glory to yourself. Continue the movement of the centuries in this day, in this place, in Jesus' name. Amen.